Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. The U.S. Postal Service was created before our nation was founded. Back then, it was the Post Office Department. Over the last 240 years, the agency has changed dramatically. Today, the institution is in trouble. Besides financial challenges, it's the focus of a partisan fight that has come to a head before a presidential election, when many Americans are expected to vote by mail. Coming up, we talk to the Institute for Policy Studies about the U.S. Postal Service and how well it can stand up to threats of privatization and a further erosion of services. Are you or someone in your family a postal worker? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We first wanted to dive into the history of the Postal Service. So joining us now on Zoom is Daniel Piazza. He's chief curator at the, at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C. Daniel, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to admit, I didn't know there was a National Postal Museum. Tell us about, um, like, I believe it was found, created in, in the mid-90s, but tell us how you ended up at the, at the museum, Daniel. Well, there is a National Postal Museum. It's in Washington, D.C. It's a Smithsonian Institution Museum right next door to Union Station in the city's old main post office building. Um, and as you mentioned, the museum itself opened to the public in 1993, but our collections are much older than that. The Smithsonian Institution began collecting uh, stamps and mail and postal artifacts back in the 1880s. So the collection is actually much older than the museum. I came to the museum uh, about 13 years ago now through my interest uh, in the history of stamps, particularly I'm a specialist in the museum's postage stamp collection. Uh, we have nearly 6 million postage stamps from the United States and all around the world, as well as a large gallery devoted to displaying them. I was uh, reading a lot the other day about the history of, of the Postal Service, and we think about uh, that it was uh, first established before our country uh, was founded, uh, thinking of the first mail stations in the colonies were in taverns. Uh, many people have heard Benjamin Franklin was the first postmaster general. What are some other uh, facts about the Postal Service that Americans would be surprised to know, Daniel? Well, as you mentioned, Benjamin Franklin was the first postmaster general of the United States. But what not many people realize is that he was also the last postmaster general under the crown. Mm -hmm. So prior to uh, prior to independence uh, and, and the American Revolution, Franklin held the office of postmaster general uh, as a royal official. So he was he was the only postmaster general to be both the British and the American postmaster general in, in what became the United States. Uh, when we think about how mail has been delivered uh, through uh, these more than 240 years from horse-drawn carriage to steamboat trains uh, to airplanes, uh, as people visit the museum and walk through the history of the Postal Service, um, how do you uh, break it up in terms of how mail was delivered and what are some of the things that people learn when they come to your museum, Daniel? 
Well, I think one thing that they learned and that, and that we show really well in our galleries is that uh, the history of the Postal Service is very closely entwined with the history of transportation uh, in the United States. So almost all methods of transportation um, from uh, railroads to steamships and then airplanes, all of these were developed, at least in part, with subsidy from the government through the Postal Service uh, in the form of postal contracts. So the Postal Service, uh, the Post Office Department, as it was then known, always looking for faster, safer, more reliable ways to, to transport the mail, would award these mail contracts to stagecoach lines first, then railroad companies, then steamship companies, and so forth. And and so that was uh, that was really a key engine in the development of all of these different modes of transportation, that, that money from the postal contracts to carry mm -hmm. the mail. I mentioned earlier in the show, we're going to be talking about how there's so much focus on the U.S. Postal Service, especially when it comes to politics. But would it surprise many to hear that the post office wasn't always as independent as we think of it as now? Daniel, tell us about that. It, it might very well surprise uh, many people because uh, we're going on now the 50th year of the Postal Reform Act of, and the Postal Reform Movement of 1970 and 71. And so for 50 years now, the USPS has been essentially a, an, an independent agency of the government. But uh, before that, it was uh, very closely entwined with the politics of the day. So going all the way back to the Andrew Jackson administration. Jackson was really the first president to see the potential of the Postal Service as uh, as a patronage, uh, for patronage jobs for his allies and political supporters all across the country. And so uh, from the Jackson administration for the next hundred years, really the post office as the largest civilian employer of the United States government was a, a tremendous source of patronage jobs. That's interesting, uh, given the context of, again, the new Postmaster General and the decision uh, by the administration to bring him on. Uh, I was talking about uh, the news, but there was also a lot of attention uh, at the U.S. Postal Inspectors who uh, were involved in the recent arrest of former White House advisor Steve Bannon on a yacht off of our state here in Connecticut. Tell us about the U.S. Postal Inspection Service and how within the Postal Service there are crime investigators. Well, that's right. Uh, the Postal Inspection Service is, is the law enforcement arm or aid, uh, bureau of, of the United States Postal Service. And any time that the U.S. mail is used in the commission of a crime, uh, it becomes a it thereby becomes a federal crime and the Postal Inspection Service uh, becomes involved in, in the investigation and sometimes, uh, as in this case, is the arresting agency. So I guess the moral of the story is <laughs> if you're going to commit a crime, don't use the mail to do it. You're hearing Daniel Piazza, Chief Curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C., as we learn more about the U.S. Postal Service today, uh, where we live. Uh, we wanted to uh, learn a little bit more about the history of uh, the Postal Service in our country, and that's why we invited uh, Daniel onto the show. Uh, I was thinking back to uh, right after 9-11 when there were letters uh, sent uh, with anthrax. Uh, that's also when uh, you had uh, the Postal Service and uh, a mail security task force working uh, to find uh, the individuals responsible. And unfortunately, there were Postal Service employees that died in, um, in, in that time. 
That's correct, yes. And uh, the Postal Inspection Service, along with the FBI, uh, investigated that case for many years. One of the things that we have on display um, in our museum galleries uh, is one of the original anthrax letters. Oh, I mentioned the Postmaster General that's been getting a lot of attention, Louis DeJoy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, when we think about who leads uh, the U.S. Postal Service, how uh, this individual is usually selected and contrast that to today? Sure. I mean, historically, um, it, it was it was the norm historically, really, for the Postmaster General to be someone very close to the president. Uh, and that... Um, goes back again to the period of the Jackson administration uh, when Andrew Jackson first invited the Postmaster General to sit as a member of the cabinet. That's maybe you were asking earlier on about something that uh, most people don't realize about, mm. about the Postal Service, which is that for uh, over 100 years, the Postmaster General was a, a member of the president's cabinet uh, from the Jackson administration uh, until the Nixon administration. So, um, uh, and, and very frequently the postmaster general was selected um, either someone who was very close to the president and in many cases, someone who had been the sitting president's campaign manager. That was actually fairly common into the 1960s. Uh, you talked earlier about also uh, curating uh, the the study of stamps and the collection at the National Postal Museum. That's a big part of, of the business of the Postal Service. Uh, can you talk about how uh, stamps originated? Sure. Uh, letters and mail obviously have existed long before postage stamps. Postage stamps weren't invented um, in, until 1840 in Great Britain, and then they were adopted in the United States in 1847. People obviously were writing letters long before that. But generally, it was the recipient of the letter who paid the postage rather than the person mailing the letter. So you would write a letter, bring it to your post office, the post office would carry it to the recipient, and the recipient was expected to pay to receive their letter. And very frequently, the person at the other end um, uh, either couldn't be found or didn't want to pay to receive their letter. And so the post office was moving letters large distances and racking up enormous deficits on undelivered mail, a mail that they either that they tried to deliver or couldn't find the addressee. They'd even advertise in the newspapers the lists of people who had mail waiting for them at the post office. And so the innovation of postage stamps in the 1840s really was to prepay the postage by the sender uh, rather than the recipient, so that the Postal Service received its money up front. Um, and, and what that enabled really was the price of mail came down dramatically and people were able to exchange letters, newspapers, pamphlets, political ideas traveling through the mail. And so I think the, uh, the intertwining of the postal system and democratic culture has been there really very, very strongly from the beginning. We know uh, many people collect stamps to this day. Can you talk about how a stamp becomes a stamp? Who uh, creates these stamps? Who um, decides uh, what will become a stamp that we can buy today, Daniel? Well, the Postal Service takes uh, suggestions from the public as to what should be on postage stamps, and they receive literally tens of thousands of letters uh, from the public and from organizations every year advocating for a uh, particular commemoration or design of a postage stamp. Those suggestions are, are uh, filtered through something called the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, which is a group of 
uh, the num- membership fluctuates from from time to time, but it's around a, a dozen individuals um, who serve the postal service as advisors. These are people who are who come from the fields of business and academia and the entertainment world, the arts world, uh, and they uh, filter through all of these suggestions that come from the public. Uh, they come up with ideas for stamp. Uh, subjects and commemorations on their own also, and they work with the staff of artists that the USPS employs to fine-tune the design. That Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee makes recommendations to the Postmaster General uh, about what subjects should be commemorated, what stamps should be issued, but the ultimate decision is the Postmaster General's. Mm -hmm. Uh, Daniel, can I ask you what some of your favorite stamps are when you're curating exhibits? Yes, absolutely. yeah, uh, you know, there's um, uh, modern stamps are very colorful and very beautiful. Uh, uh, they have the quality of illustration and sometimes even of photographs. And so they're very popular with the public. But I personally tend to like the older stamp issues uh, from before, say, uh, let's say around 1960, when stamps were in beautifully engraved in very, very fine and intricate detail that you can look at. You can look at these stamps under a jeweler's loop. Um, and and the intricacy of the detail, the fineness of the engraving is just stunning when you realize that people were doing this, uh, you know, over 100 years ago, all by hand, um, engraving in steel in low light conditions, working backwards, sitting, the, the engraver actually sitting in front of a mirror, engraving the image in the plate backwards so that when the stamp printed, you know, it would it would print um, uh, it would print right side up. So uh, I, I have a special fondness for the older engraved postage stamps. Mm-hmm. I mentioned again uh, that the Postal Museum uh, has been in existence uh, since uh, the mid-90s. Uh, has there been, uh, because of the Postal Service being in the news, has there been more attention on the museum that you work at? Or how did you operate during COVID, Daniel? There definitely has been more attention and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of press inquiries and requests for appearances. It's unfortunate that right now the Postal Museum is is closed, along mm-hmm. with many other Smithsonian museums, because of the uh, because of the pandemic uh, and, and the COVID crisis. And so, uh, you know, you're broadcasting from home. I'm speaking to you from home. I haven't I haven't actually even seen the museum in in five months. Uh, so uh, we've shifted a lot of our activity online doing outreach through interviews like this through our own website creating and posting videos on the history of the postal service you know in our own channels and outlets so if you want to get a historical perspective and understand a little bit of the background of how things got to where they are now and where some of these um, where some of these tensions that we're dealing with now how they originated uh, you could spend hours on our website looking at some some of the lectures and the videos and uh, the old exhibits uh, that are that are featured there. Well, we'll tweet out links uh, to your museum, the Smithsonian National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C. Daniel Piazza is chief curator there. Daniel, thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we wade into the challenges the U.S. Postal Service faces. How does a 245-year-old institution stay relevant in the e-commerce era? And what will service look like this November when millions of Americans vote by mail? We'll talk about all of that and answer your questions, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The U.S. Postal Service is in trouble. The latest challenge to the federal agency comes after new Postmaster General Louis DeJoy began enacting cost-cutting proposals like banning overtime and changing delivery policies. An outcry from lawmakers and the public led to DeJoy to halting those plans until after the election. My next guest has researched the U.S. Postal Service. Sarah Anderson is with the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. She's Global Economy Director there, and she joins us on Zoom. Sarah, welcome to our show. So good to be here. Thank you. Our listeners can also join our conversation, especially if you or someone in your family is a postal worker. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, before we get into the controversy surrounding uh, Postmaster DeJoy, I wanted to find out, Sarah, how the pandemic has affected the U.S. Postal Service. Can you walk us through uh, some of the trends uh, over the last six months? Absolutely. I think people are keenly aware that the Postal Service is really an essential frontlines workforce uh, during the pandemic. There's been a huge spike in demand for package deliveries uh, going up 50% last quarter compared to the same quarter in 2019. And that's because people are trying to socially distance and keep themselves safe from the pandemic. And so they are ordering a lot more of their medications, food, cleaning supplies, and other essentials through the mail. And the Postal Service is a a vital uh, part of the delivery service for those kinds of essentials. At the same time, though, the recession has really cut into the Postal Service revenue from mail. Uh, So that is really down. And that's why the Postal Service, despite the package boom, is still in need of the kind of COVID-related relief that so many private corporations have already received. When we think about uh, the thousands of people who work within the U.S. Postal Service, you mentioned that they're an essential service. But in terms of uh, assistance from the federal government related to the pandemic, has, has the U.S. Postal Service received any assistance protecting its employees? They have not received a dime in direct cash assistance. Um, So if you think about the airlines uh, got $25 billion in direct cash uh, aid uh, related to the crisis, the Postal Service out there on the front lines working every day has not gotten anything. They did get the opportunity to uh, take on $10 billion more in debt, which they don't really need. They already have pretty big debt burdens. um, And so that's why uh, the political debate is continuing. The House did pass a bill uh, last Saturday providing $25 billion in postal relief, but the Senate uh, does not appear to be planning to take action on that, at least not until later in September, despite the fact that there there is bipartisan support in both chambers for um, helping the Postal Service in this time of great need. 26 Republicans voted for the bill on the House side, and seven uh, Republican senators have come out for a similar aid package. Hmm. When we think of COVID-19 impacting the health of essential workers, do we know how many postal workers uh, contracted the virus? 
Well, I heard most recently that 73 postal workers have died uh, tragically from this infection. Thousands of them have uh, been infected and tens of thousands of them have had to quarantine because they were exposed to uh, fellow employees who had the virus. And so uh, there's been a real staffing shortage at the Postal Service because of the crisis. Many others, of course, have had to take time off to take care of family and friends. And so it is really remarkable that at least until recently, the postal workforce, despite the staffing shortage and the spike in demand for packages, had been doing a a really incredible job of of getting people what they needed in a timely way. Hmm. You can join our conversation as we learn more about the challenges uh, in front of the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, The number here on where we live, 888 Seven two zero nine six seven seven, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With us on Zoom, Sarah Anderson, Global Economy Director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. And we wanted to get perspective from uh, someone who's worked at the Postal Service for many years. So joining us now on Zoom is Vince Mace. He's a retired Postal Service worker. He also is Director of Retirees at the Connecticut State Association of Letter Carriers. Vince, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Uh, so tell us first, uh, what drew you to the U.S. Postal Service? How long uh, did you work for the agency? Well, first of all, Lucy, I want to thank you for having me on the year today. We talked about this here. Um, I worked for the agency from uh, 1974 until 2005 uh, for a little over 30 years. Uh, but after I retired, I became president of the union uh, for the past 15 years. So I've been involved with the Postal Service from 1974 to today for about 46 years. That's a long time. So you've seen uh, many changes within uh, the Postal Service and how uh, workers uh, do their jobs each and every day. Uh, What's really striking to you at this moment in time? Uh, You mentioned that you're retired, but you're still involved in a union that represents postal workers today. Yeah, well, um, one of the most striking things is the appointment of the uh, new Postmaster General. Um, What many people don't realize is he's the first outsider uh, in 25 years. The previous three postmaster generals came up to the rank and file. They started off as bargain unit employees and then moved their way up. And uh, it was comfortable having somebody at the at the, the head that knew the ins and outs of the Postal Service. Uh, a person coming in from a private company is very difficult to deal with. Uh, we've had them before, but uh, very hard to uh, imagine working with somebody who uh, tries to control everything without going through the proper channels. Mm. I asked uh, Sarah to talk about the impact of COVID Mm -hmm. and the pandemic on the U.S. Postal Service in terms of employees within uh, the state of Connecticut that are working for the Postal Service. Uh, What has it been like for them the last few months, Vince? Well, you know, when it first started, uh, everybody was frightened. And um, we worked with the Postal Service, all the bargaining units worked with the Postal Service to make sure we had enough PPEs. Uh, make sure they provided masks, uh, you know, wipes and sanitized uh, hand lotion. Um, right now, in Connecticut Valley, which covers Western Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, we've only had 171 employees test positive for COVID-19 and uh, no deaths or no serious illnesses. So we've taken very, very strict measures to ensure the safety of all the postal workers uh, in the Connecticut Valley. 
Hmm. Well, stay with us, Vince. We'd like to hear more from you as well as our listeners, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sarah, Vince mentioned uh, the new Postmaster General. So let's talk about uh, General DeJoy uh, when he took office and the measures that uh, he tried to uh, put forth that I believe have been halted, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely have completely gone away. Right. So Louis DeJoy, who's a former corporate CEO, as Vince mentioned, he's also a Republican mega donor and Trump ally, ally took uh, the helm of the Postal Service on June 15th. And the broader context is he, here is that the Trump administration had been going after the Postal Service for years. Uh, starting in 2018, uh, the Trump administration recommended selling off our public postal service to private for-profit corporations. Then more recently, President Trump has repeatedly attacked uh, vote by mail and uh, made it clear that he was in opposition to financial relief for the Postal Service during the crisis, um, because if they didn't get that money, in, in his view, they then would not be able to carry out vote by mail, which he has repeatedly um, said would create widespread fraud without any evidence to back that up. So in comes a new leader of the Postal Service who is very uh, close to Trump, and he very quickly starts introducing operational changes that he admits has uh, caused mail slowdowns across the country. And this really created a lot of fear for, for numerous reasons. Fears about, are people going to be able to get their essential services? There are stories about people um, being delayed in getting their insulin and their chemo drugs and things like that. Fears about the it, it, uh, vote by mail. Um, it, it seemed that there was a lack of uh, declining confidence in uh, the vote by mail process, given the the mail slowdown. And so uh, congressional offices were really flooded with concerns about this. And uh, Postmaster General DeJoy was invited to testify before two different uh, committees on the Hill. And in response to this huge um, backlash, he did say that he would stop um, removing um, high-speed sorting machines and he would stop the removal of the blue collection boxes. But the thing that he is really sticking to um, is that he is insisting that postal mail trucks uh stay on a rigid schedule. They have to leave on time. They have to return on a rigid schedule, even if that means leaving mail and packages behind. And if you look at data that was leaked um, from someone internally at USPS, you can see that as soon as he introduced uh, these changes, the on-time delivery standards for the Postal Service, which had been remarkably strong for the first number of months under the pandemic, um, they, they really declined. And this is reinforced by just stories all across the country of people um, facing much slower deliveries of their mail and their packages. Um, and so it really raises a lot of questions for people. Why would you make such drastic changes in the middle of a pandemic and three months before an election when people will be relying on vote by mail more than ever before? You can join our conversation about the U.S. Postal Service, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. John's calling in from Waterbury. John, you're on the show. 
Hi, I just wanted to say that the biggest reason for the Postal Service's death is that they're required to pre-fund their pension, and they're the only government agency that's required to do so. And they actually are overfunded currently, which you cannot say about very many pension funds that are out there. Hmm. Good point, uh, John. I know uh, Sarah Anderson, our guest, has written about this. Tell us more about uh, this pre-funded mandate and how that uh, really contributes to the financial uh, situation the U.S. Postal Service is in, Sarah. Yes, thanks to John for bringing this important point up. Congress really manufactured a crisis in the Postal Service by passing a law in 2006 that, as John pointed out, requires them to pre-fund their retiree health benefits more than 50 years in advance. And no other uh, private corporation or government agency has to do this. And if not for this onerous burden on the Postal Service, they would have reported a profit every year between 2013 and 2018. But this manufactured crisis um, has been used to justify calls for privatization. I'm sure people have seen headlines about how the Postal Service is a financial basket case and private companies could do so much better. And and the real truth is that um, without this Uh, 2006 law related to the funding of their retiree health benefits, the Postal Service would have been in much better shape in recent years. And so in addition to getting them the crisis relief they need um, uh, to continue providing essential services during the pandemic, repealing that 2006 law is really critical to the long-term health of the Postal Service. We're going to be talking more about the financial challenges uh, facing uh, the U.S. Postal Service, including uh, e-commerce, and then also how the Postal Service will be able to deliver all of these uh, absentee mail-in voting uh, for November. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Tom's calling in from Manchester. Tom, you're on the show. Oh, good morning. Um, I'm a proud postal employee um, from the greater Hartford area um, for nearly um, 36 years. And the reason I'm calling is um, I think we try to do the best that we can to satisfy our customers. I'm an expediter that arrives in the park uh, trucks, and we don't call them shifts but tours. And we stay busy every day of the year, including holidays and and uh, weekends around the clock. And uh, we I think we have a proud tradition going back to Ben Franklin. We have a postal inspection service that has now deal with you know terrorism and theft and uh, other issues, and also with some employees that were killed in the line of uh, mm-hmm. duty at uh, at times or through um, shootings or sometimes assault. So we have to put up with that, and even dogs. You know, we have, uh, I guess the letter carries carry mace at times too, and there's uh, and we deliver in all kind of weather, and you know when it's easily you know, fiscally possible and and we've been affected by weather across the country too so uh we're a family and we're a diverse organization i think a third of our employees are um, veterans and uh i'm a person of color african-american and you know uh i try to do my eight hours uh my 40 hours diligently every uh day of the year and uh help to do my best and return um safely so i think um we're a government well semi-government agency since the change in 1970, but I think uh, uh, we do try to do our best, despite President Trump's divisive um, comments out of ignorance, uh, uh, you know, we should uh, 
visit you know one of these days and uh that we do our best of just having enough staffing and uh and listening to new ideas and i know times are changing with you know technology but i think we're up to the task and uh just hope that we can you know keep satisfying our customers and they believe in us and that uh we're not a uh, bloat, and uh, I mm-hmm. think with the you know uh, we do provide services even for the private sector and businesses too, because I'm sure they want their mail delivered on time. So uh, I think yes, a lot of a lot of Americans are depending on you, uh, Tom, as well as uh, your colleagues. Uh, before we let you go, can I ask you what has morale been like uh, within uh, your uh, uh, your unit, so to speak, uh, in the Manchester area over the last few months? Uh, I guess it's been uh, good. We weren't sure with the COVD, and I think they've been providing, you know, masks and gloves. So hopefully the morale is, you know, uh, picking up. And for those who have to stay out under the new law, you know, you have got that, you know, the medical privacy. So I think it's been um, improving, you know, you know, somewhat that, you know, we have a you know, job to do. But uh, hopefully that, uh, you know, they keep the uh, facilities sanitized and clean and mm-hmm. they try to, you know, reassure us that, you know, we're working in safe conditions and that we try to, uh, you know, return home to our families, you know, every day after our t- tours completed. So uh, hopefully it's going up there and, uh, you know, you know, you know, keeping uh, morale up in a, you know, positive way. And I think, uh, you know, for our, my union, they're trying to, you know, you know, uh, do what we can and uh, reassure the customers that, you know, we're there to, you know, work mm-hmm. hard and um, and do our best. So uh, I just take it one day at a time. And, uh, and Well, thank uh, you. Thank you, Tom, for calling in uh, from Manchester, uh, a current postal worker. Sarah Anderson, I wonder if you could uh, respond to what uh, Tom shared. Uh, there was a lot uh, there in terms of describing, uh, you know, him, him personally, but also the job that he does each and every day. Absolutely. He raised so many important points. The the point about how the Postal Service has been a really important, reliable path to the middle class, uh, particularly for African Americans who make up about 27% of the workforce. And it's been that way for decades. And then the point about the the work ethic and the pride in that job, I think that's why uh, the Postal Service is by far the most popular government agency. And the support for the Postal service is completely nonpartisan at the like ordinary people level you know 90% of republicans support financial relief for the postal service during the crisis 96% of democrats it's at the political leader level here in washington that things have been um, polarized and so i i really think it's important for everybody who cares about the postal service and wants to support the the postal uh, workforce to be speaking out now and um, making it clear to to Congress that that people really do care about this vital public agency. You know, a a big fear of privatization is that these decent postal jobs, postal workers aren't rich, but they make decent pay and and benefits. and And that pay supports families in every community in America. And one of the fears about privatization is not only that people would face higher prices and maybe even get their service cut off if they live in rural areas, but that we'd see an erosion of the the quality of these jobs, that they could be turned into more like Walmart uh, jobs instead of the the decent jobs that um, the Postal Service has been known for for so many Mm. decades and even centuries. 
And Sarah, we'll be talking more about uh, privatization, uh, but you can join our conversation as we learn more about the U.S. Postal Service, 888-720-9677. Linda's calling from Weathersfield. Linda, you're on the show. Yes, it's very good to follow the man from the Hartford Postal, Manchester. I have this idea to show public support, and I'll sum it up really quickly. Take a post-it note and write post-it vote. We love America's post office. Stick with a good tradition and affix it to the blue box, blue collection boxes, or put them in when you mail your bills. This is an idea I'm trying to promote. My computer's broken, but this is old-fashioned viral (laughs) in a very hands-on way. Post-it votes so that you go around and see on these blue boxes, like, little fluttering signs of support, because I am passionate about the post office as a good tradition. Well, I can tell, Linda, that's a great idea. Thank you uh, for your call. Uh, Vince Mesa, you're with us on Zoom, a retired postal care worker, or postal worker, rather. Uh, respond to both Linda calling in as well as uh, Tom earlier. Yeah, well, um, two things I'd like to add, and thank you very much. Um, Sarah's right. Uh, in 2006, the Postal Service, Congress uh, started the Postal Service with a $50 billion uh, price tag to retiree funds for 75 years into the future. So that means people who weren't even born today would benefit from that there. So that's a bill that uh, the Postal Service is not able to pay. However, in the past 50 years, what people don't realize is that no taxpayer money has gone to the Postal Service in the past 50 years. The Postal Service is the only federal agency that brings in a revenue to support its services. And until the pandemic, the Postal Service, if they didn't have to pay the $50 billion, they would wind up being in the black, operating in the black each year. Another thing is the Postal Service has a 91% approval rating by American, uh, the American public. We are the most trusted private or public agency in the United States of America. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Another thing that people don't realize, letter carriers deliver to 160 million homes and businesses six days a week. That's 160 million, both in urban areas and rural areas. A lot of companies don't do that there, and the Postal Service is the last mile for UPS and FedEx on many instances. So, important important points, Vince. Uh, I wanted to go back to Sarah before we uh, run out of time. Uh, Sarah, you know, I, I started the show talking about, uh, obviously, a big presidential election uh, coming up. Many Americans are expected to vote by mail because we're in this pandemic. Is this a lift that the U.S. Postal Service can handle, especially with some of the changes that DeJoy uh, uh, tried to put forth, uh, including, uh, you know, changing up the, the machines that postal workers use to even sort mail. Mm-hmm. Managing vote by mail won't be a problem as long as the Postmaster General DeJoy and President Trump let postal workers do their jobs. They are accustomed to dealing with this volume of mail. Uh, in the week before Christmas, they handle 3 billion 
pieces of mail. And we're looking at an estimated 80 million Americans voting by mail this year. So I think the capacity is there. What I'm worried about is the, the messages that are being sent to the American people that could undermine their confidence in vote by mail and discourage people from participating in our democratic process uh, during this pandemic. And so I, I think the, the, the pressure on um, the, the postal services leaders as well as Congress uh, needs to continue so that we are, can feel confident and, and trust that the, the financial support will be there and that there won't be anyone from inside the postal service who's trying to sabotage this vital public agency at such a critical moment in our history. And we should mention that uh, in Connecticut, there's also uh, stressing from the um, Secretary of the State's office uh, here in Connecticut, uh, many uh, residents being encouraged to use ballot boxes uh, where they can drop off uh, their mail-in uh, ballot uh, versus uh, the mail because of those concerns uh, that you mentioned, uh, Sarah. Sarah Anderson is my guest on Zoom today, Global Economy Director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to continue talking more about the U.S. Postal Service, including the communities uh, it serves. But I want to thank Vince Mace for joining us, also a retired Postal Service worker and Director of Retirees at the Connecticut State Association of Letter Carriers. Vince, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for, uh, thank you very much for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about the U.S. Postal Service with my guest, Sarah Anderson, Global Economy Director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Sarah, I wanted to learn more about the people that work at the Postal Service, the communities that it serves. We heard from Tom, uh, who said that he's an African-American man working for the Postal Service for many years in Connecticut. Um, Overall, how many people of color make up the U.S. Postal Service, and and what would this mean uh, if the agency were to be privatized? Yeah, well, the total postal workforce is about 633,000 people, and 40% of those are people of color. So it's it's really a vital source of decent jobs for people of color and their families. I should also point out that 97,000 of postal workers are veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many years, uh, really going back to um, right after the Civil War, the Postal Service has offered preferences in and hiring for for veterans. So it's one of the leading employers of veterans in the country as well. Uh, You mentioned earlier that um, if the U.S. Postal Service was privatized, uh, you know, those good paying jobs, they wouldn't have the type of salary that they they do now to make a good career for themselves. Uh, But I was also thinking about uh, the fact that services within the U.S. Postal Service are affordable and that if you have an address, the U.S. Postal Service has to make every effort to get you your mail. Yes, to get it there and to get it uh, there at an affordable and uniform rate. So this goes back to the uniform 
universal service obligation of the Postal Service. It was intended by our founding farmers, uh, farmers, founders, um, <laughs> founding fathers to uh, use the Postal Service to help bind our nation. And so that's why it costs the same amount of money to send a stamp to Alaska as it does to send it um, down the, the road from you. And the way that the Postal Service manages to do that is it takes money from more profitable parts of its uh, operations and uses that to cover the cost of these more expensive routes to more rural and remote locations. Um, they, they do that because of that social mission. A for-profit corporation is not going to have any interest in taking on delivery routes that they can't make money off of. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at the Institute for Policy Studies, we looked at, well, what are these more expensive routes? And we looked at where are the places in the country where UPS and FedEx already charge extra to deliver to people's homes, because those would be the ones that uh, we think the, the rates would really be jacked up on or even just cut off entirely if they didn't have the competition from the public postal service. And these are areas where 70 million Americans live. So it's not just people on, you know, islands or mountaintops. We're talking about vast swaths of the country that um, are likely to face really severe uh, repercussions if we sell off our postal service to private companies. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah, what does the future look like for the U.S. Postal Service? You know, the the agency reported $2.2 billion in net losses for the third quarter. Uh, we mentioned uh, this pre-funded mandate, of course, that is a huge uh, uh, strain on the postal agency. Mm -hmm. But because first-class mail uh, revenue has declined, because of the impact on e-commerce and how Amazon delivers on its own for most of the uh, time, I mean, how, how has that all impacted the agency and what are some real takeaways for how to help it uh, be sustainable without being privatized? Yeah, well, beyond the things we've already discussed about getting rid of this onerous burden of pre-funding their retiree health benefits and getting them the COVID relief they need to get through the pandemic. There are so many creative ways that people should be exploring to uh, increase revenue for the Postal Service. One of them is to expand their financial services. They already provide money orders, but in many other countries, the post office is also a place where you can go to cash your checks or use an ATM machine or get a, a range of other financial services. It makes up about 18% of postal revenue in countries around the world. Um, and there is some uh, movement on this in the, the Democratic Party platform uh, as just one example of, of how this debate is evolving. They call for creating new individual financial accounts through the Federal Reserve that people could access through their post offices. Um, there are ideas about charging a small fee for the letter carrier to check in on the elderly and the homebound. That's something else that um, countries um, elsewhere in the world are doing to, to use their postal service to address the urgent need for uh, more care for our aging population. Um, so these are the kind of ideas I wish we were discussing right now. Um, we could be having a really rich debate. Our, our postal service has innovated just constantly mm -hmm. over the years in so many ways. They're totally capable of innovating to meet today's urgent needs. Um, and instead, we have a leader of the Postal Service who is fixated on cutting, 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 um, 
in the middle of a pandemic even, instead of thinking creatively about how do we improve and expand this incredible institution that we've all helped build up. An institution that for many families, uh, they have multiple uh, relatives that work for the U.S. Postal Service. I understand you have a personal connection as well, Sarah. (laughs) I have a very long family history with the Postal Service. After the Civil War, my great-grandfather, he was a Union Army uh, soldier in um, Rhode Island, close to to you all, and he got a job delivering the mail between Westerly, Rhode Island, and uh, Newport, and uh, by boat and train, and um, then his son uh, got a job with the Postal Service out in North Dakota and started delivering the mail on horseback and eventually worked his way up to be postmaster of North Dakota. And I thought so much about how, um, you know, what a strong work ethic they had, how they, they worked really hard, but they also made decent pay. And that that decent uh, postal service salary helped insulate my family from the Great Depression um, and created so many other benefits. And my family story is no different from family stories of millions of Americans who have close uh, family members or friends in the postal workers who, you know, throughout our history have done an amazing job to, to provide these essential services and help keep this vast country together. Sarah Anderson, again, is Global Economy Director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. We'll tweet out links uh, to some of uh, her research on the Postal Service. Sarah, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, Test Terrible produced today's show. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>